WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. There are over 4,000 different PFOS chemicals. We've talked about PFOS in the past, but today we're going to refresh your memory and we're going to be talking about it in a different aspect with Jamie Liebold. Hi, Jamie. Thanks for joining us today. May you please tell us more about your research in PFAS and about yourself? Absolutely. So I'm Jamie. I'm an undergraduate student here at MSU, and my research is focused on PFAS effects on gap junctions. So gap junctions are a bioindicator of uncontrolled cell proliferation. So when gap junctions are open, cells are healthy, they're communicating properly, but when gap junctions are closed, that's when we start to see significant problems such as uncontrolled cell proliferation, and cancer is one of the biggest events of uncontrolled cell proliferation. Thanks for joining us today, Jamie. You had mentioned that cancer could be one example of what happens when cells proliferate rapidly, but what are other things that can happen? So when uncontrolled cell proliferation occurs, this can be really harmful because this just triggers uncontrolled cell growth. And the whole point of the cell cycle is to keep growth under control and make sure the DNA is as it should be and there aren't any issues in replication. So when it's uncontrolled, there aren't these same checkpoints. So the cells can do whatever they want without any sort of checkpoints on how they should look. Earlier, whenever I introduced this episode, I knew very vaguely that you study PFAS. Whenever you're studying PFAS, are you looking at maybe the length of these gap junctions? What are you specifically doing to relate them? So I'm looking at the effects of PFAS on gap junctions. So the gap junctions are either going to be open or they're going to be closed. So we're going to quantify this based on the fluorescence that we see through our experiments. And if the gap junctions are open, then we know that the PFAS is not closing gap junctions and there will not be uncontrolled cell proliferation. But if those gap junctions are closed, then we can see that PFAS may contribute to uncontrolled cell proliferation. So we're really hoping to see that PFAS can open or close gap junction channels, which is the purpose of this experiment. I want to take a step back really quickly and talk a little bit about what PFAS actually is. Can you explain what PFAS is and where does it come from? Absolutely. So PFAS is an environmental contaminant and it's in our ecosystems because it's used in manufacturing. So PFAS today is used in any sort of durable product because PFAS is known as the forever chemical. Because of the structure of the PFAS, it has a fluorinated carbon chain, which means that it can never break down in our ecosystem. So a lot of researchers, including the MSU research on PFAS, is focused on taking PFAS out of our ecosystems because PFAS accumulates in our ecosystems and causes a lot of harm. So PFAS comes from manufacturers who generally do not dispose of it properly, and it's used in a lot of products such as nonstick cookware, any waterproof clothing, most shoes have PFAS. Anything really advertised as being durable will most likely have PFAS in it. So the PFAS is the forever chemical 
which makes it a huge concern for our environment. And it is of political concern right now. Biden just allocated $1.7 billion into PFAS cleanup in the Great Lakes. So it's actually being shown through other studies that 99% of Americans have PFAS in their bloodstream. So PFAS is here and it's here to stay. And we really have to figure out how to manage it in our ecosystems, but also figure out what it does to our bodies and how to mitigate that harmful effect. Thanks for explaining that, Jamie. I think it's been like two years since we've talked about PFAS on the Sci-Files. Now back to those gap junctions, you had mentioned that you were observing if they were opened or closed. How do you observe that in particular? So to observe if the gap junctions are open or closed, this goes to our methods of our experiments. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a plate of WB rat epithelial liver cells because PFAS is known to accumulate in the liver. From those, we'll treat those with the PFAS chemical for a variable amount of time. And then we're going to take that out and add lucifer yellow. So the lucifer yellow is used as a fluorescent dye because we can see it under the UV fluorescent microscope and then create three scrape lines, which is why it's called the scrape load dye transfer assay. So with those scrape lines, we're going to take that under the microscope and we can see the fluorescence travel. So the fluorescence is going to travel along those gap junctions. So we will visually see if the gap junctions are open because if they're open, then the fluorescence will travel along those gap junctions and we will see that fluorescence on the microscope and we can take pictures of that. If the gap junctions are closed, then there will be no fluorescence around that scrape line. And then we know that those gap junctions are closed and we can quantify that. This is also kind of varies depending on the amount of time or the chemical or there's so many factors. So it does vary on how much the gap junctions are open or closed around that scrape line. We do focus on that scrape line because that opens the initial channel and then the cells around those initial cells will receive the fluorescence from that scrape line. If I ever had an opportunity to name a yellow dye, I would probably call it Sinestro Yellow, just because, you know, Green Lantern vibes, right? But when it comes to the PFOS that you're working with, it's typically known as a general name for several different compounds. Are you working with a specific compound that you're looking at, the Lucifer Yellow? And what made you choose this particular chemical? Absolutely. So you're right. PFAS is a very general term given to all perfluoroalkanated substances. So there are actually over 4,000 different types of PFAS, and there are new PFAS chemicals being invented all the time. So in our results, we tried to look at as many PFAS chemicals as we could in the amount of time that we were given, but we did categorize the PFAS chemicals based on the length of the carbon chain, because the length of the carbon chain will vary in most PFAS chemicals. So we try to look at the most common and then categorize those based on the length of the carbon chain. So we actually found that the longer the carbon chain of the PFAS chemical, the quicker those gap junctions closed. So that means that the longer the carbon chain, the greater the potential for uncontrolled cell proliferation. So the longer the carbon chain, the worse it can be for your body 
And this is important because we might be able to tell manufacturers who still do need to use PFAS in their products to say, hey, if you use a smaller carbon chain, it won't be as bad for the ecosystem or your human body. So it's really important to figure out what types of PFAS are and aren't dangerous because manufacturers are going to have to use it for quite some time until we figure out a safer alternative. What was also interesting that we found is in the six carbon PFAS specifically, we actually found that it did not close gap junctions whatsoever under any time period, which is super interesting because we have no idea what physics could possibly cause this, but we do know that it's not closing the gap junctions. So this can also indicate that manufacturers may be able to use the 6-carbon PFAS as a safe alternative. In chemistry, we've learned things such as cleaving bonds or the ability to break apart molecules. Are there things that we can particularly put with the PFAS that can break apart these longer chains that can give our body the opportunity to try and break down the rest of it? So PFAS is known as the forever chemical, which makes this question pretty difficult because PFAS does not break down because of the fluorinated carbon chain. So this is a question that many researchers are trying to answer, especially when it concerns our water systems and our soil systems, because our bodies, nor any animal's bodies, nor any water or soil processes can break down these PFAS chemicals, which is what makes it of so much concern right now. For those that don't know, molecules are typically a lot smaller than the cells that they make up. However, it's like you said, these PFAS chemicals can consist of these long chains. In relation to the gap junction, how does the size of these different PFAS chemicals that you're testing compare to the size of the gap junction itself? So the size of the PFAS is in no way comparable to the gap junctions because the gap junctions is made up of a series of proteins called connexons. So compared to the size of these proteins, PFAS doesn't even compare. But we, for some reason, still see the closure of those gap junctions. So we're still trying to figure out why this happens, which is part of this research. Is there maybe some kind of chemical or enzyme that we can treat these gap junctions with so that these gap junctions can stay open? Yes, and I'm so glad you asked because this is such a huge part of this research project. Because ultimately, we already know that PFAS can cause events of uncontrolled cell proliferation from previous studies. But we really do want to focus on how we can prevent these events of uncontrolled cell proliferation, even when exposed to PFAS chemicals. What we actually found that it was the chemicals quercentin, curcumin, and silabinin that prevented the closure of the gap junctions after the addition of PFAS. So when we pretreated the cells with these chemicals and then added the PFAS, the cells did not close the gap junctions and the cells were healthy and everything was going well. So quercentin is found in fruits and vegetables and curcumin is found in silabinin. So if you don't understand anything from this podcast, please eat your fruits and vegetables and eat your turmeric. Yeah, I try to get my daily dose of fruits and vegetables whenever I'm at home just cooking up a meal and enjoying some dessert. 
Now that you've performed this study on the impact that PFAS can have on these gap junctions, what is the next step looking like for this kind of research? Absolutely. So in our lab, we're really focused on gap junctions and what environmental contaminants can open and close those gap junctions and prevent the closure of gap junctions from environmental contaminants. So the next step in this is to find a high throughput system for this type of research. So because there are so many PFAS compounds, this is super important in gap junction research is to find the high throughput system that's going to work because the scrape load dye transfer assay just is not going to be efficient for over 4,000 types of PFAS and growing. So right now where we're at with the high throughput system, it's not perfect and we definitely have a long ways to go, but we are making progress. So we're trying to develop this system with Drs. Giyu and Lee of Yansai University. And what we're going to do, we are going to transfect a subset of cells with the iodide transporter and then another subset with the yellow fluorescent protein. So after the addition of iodide, if those gap junctions are open, then that iodide is going to quench the yellow fluorescence and we're going to see complete fluorescent quenching. If those gap junctions are closed, after the addition of iodide, the iodide cannot travel along those gap junctions, so we will not see the fluorescent quenching. So it's kind of the opposite of the scrape load dye transfer assay, as if the cells are fluorescent, then that means the gap junctions are closed in the high throughput assay, whereas the scrape load transfer assay, if the gap junctions were closed, it would not be fluorescent. We definitely have a long ways to go in this because phenanthrene is a known inhibitor of gap junctions, and we would expect to see complete no fluorescent quenching with the addition of phenanthrene. We are currently seeing a lot of fluorescence, so we still need to continue to edit that and adjust that as needed, but we're making progress every week, and I really hope that that can be completed soon. Well, that's really cool, Jamie. I'm very excited to hear where your research goes further from this next step. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sci-Files, and good luck with the rest of your research. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out SciFiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember... The truth is in the science.